when I was a kid, my parents would be like, don't just read comics. You know, they'd try to sneak my comics away from mm-hmm. me and slip in, you know, Willa Cather or something. <laughs> and, and with Charlie, I'm like, I'm like, you know, oh, I left the peanuts volume on your bed, you know, and all that. You know, it's like, or I'd be mad. Like, why didn't you read the rest of that Superboy comic I put on your, you know. You What's wrong with you? Yeah, you can't read this Dickens until you finish the Superboy right. comic. Yeah, you're always reading this, high, you know, high-handed literature. You've got to read these comic books I put out for you. You'll never understand modern civilization. He's, he's sort of at the stage where now maybe he could start reading like my stuff. Like he's never read any of my comics or uh, you know, s- s- like more adult kind of stuff. But I, I'm you know he really he liked uh, Little Lulu. That was the one thing that really. <laughs> Like he read every single one mm-hmm. and, uh, and he would, he would use the words the characters use, like these antiquated terms. <laughs> like I remember once when he was little and he got really sad and he actually went, bah, <laughs> cause that's how the automatic of crying. Yeah. Right. My wife and I just like literally collapsed on the floor, like sobbing, like, oh my God, he just said, bah. The collection, I mean, it sounds like you played a pretty pretty big role in putting it together. I mean, you actually... In this, the original art book? Yeah, you you went through and um, chose the pieces yourself, is that right? Well, it was, it was mostly like I just had all the scans and I had the original, so I had to, I had, I hired a, a uh, helper to come in and scan all the pages, but I, I was sort of having to go through it as we were putting it together, so it was, it was not... Um, like I went out of my way to, to work on it. It was just like, I was, I was the conduit for how Fantagraphics got all the artwork. So does it feel weird to do a collection like that? I mean, obviously this isn't the first retrospective of your stuff. I mean, does it feel like eulogizing yourself to some degree? Well, it's more like you're looking at the artwork as artwork, which is very different Mm. than, um, like I tried not to pick stuff necessarily for like historical value. You know, I tried to actually pick, um, pages that I thought were interesting or that were different from the other pages or that, you know, gave, I, I didn't want it to be like the same page over and over and over, mm-hmm. which a lot of the original art books, I feel like it's like you really, you just need one page and you kind of get it, yeah. you know, and, and I wanted it to be all over the map from all phases of my career and pages that maybe other like there were a few that other people were like why'd you pick that one and it was just something that i happened to to like for whatever reason visually as a whole this is it's pretty representative of your work yeah i feel pretty good about it because luckily um my old friend alvin buenaventura uh may he rest in peace he um he had the thought of that one day this book would exist and it might have even been before there were any of these original art books, but he really mm-hmm. had this idea of like, you know, if you want to sell any of your work or, or you know, move it anywhere else, you have to you have to scan it at the highest possible resolution so that it could be reprinted as original art. And I remember thinking like, what a waste of time. I don't want to deal with that. And he went through and did all that for all, all my early artwork. And uh, so without him, you know, this book would have been a third of its size. <laughs> When you go back and look at the old stuff, does it make you nostalgic for the early work? Are you are you prone to nostalgia? Not for my own work, no. It's it's funny. It all just comes back. You know, you look at the you look at the pages, and you can I can literally remember what I was listening to on the radio during certain panels. It's just like a mnemonic 
device, you know, just, oh, it, and, and that's not true of looking at the printed pages. That's a very different thing. But to look at the actual originals is, uh, it has a real power, you know, it's really, it represents a week in your life at some point, you know, and you really can feel like here's what I was doing for an entire week. There's not many other experiences like that where you can feel the, you know, just the hours of sitting in this one position, looking at this one thing, focusing. It is something that is something interesting about the um, process of mass producing it is yeah. that you you remove all of the lines, you remove all of the work, you remove all of the, the hours that it took to produce every single panel. It almost hides the work that you've done to some degree. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing because it really is the original art is not the, the art you know it's a it's a byproduct of the art. I always liken it to like a abandoned hornet's nest or something like that. You know, it's like this this individually potentially beautiful thing that's created after the actual function has has you know flown away. So it's. Um, it's just this, it's this reminder of something else. But so I try with the book, I tried to pick those, you know, those pages that, that worked on their own that you could maybe look at for longer than, you know, it, it would take to just read the page that there might be something more to them. To me, I, the most interesting part of the book actually comes at the end where you break down the old processes the kind of arcane processes right. that you know you totally spend most obsolete. of your life yeah working on why why was it important to include that i i, I mean i i did it with a sort of ironic tone but i sure. wanted i want you know people especially anybody under you know 40 45 could would look at some of these techniques and just think like what are you doing you know why would you do it like this but it was all mostly pre-digital and so it was um you know we used like a one of the things I used early on was called Zipatone. That was this archaic thing, mostly popular in the 50s, most famously used by people like Wally Wood and EC Comics and things like that. That was a dot pattern that came on a transparent sticker and you would cut it out and adhere it to your artwork and it would give... It basically made gray tones by taking little black dots that could be printed without sort of modern printing techniques that would involve scanning and turning artwork into color artwork. It's for printing only in black and white. And so it's this very mechanical process. People really look down on it, but I love how it looked. I loved the patterns it created. People look down on the, the final product? Well, they would look down on the use of Zipatone. It was sort of like, well, why don't you do cross-hatching or ink wash or any of these other techniques that are more sort of artistic in, in the way of, you know, how they are prepared. But, but Zipatone was sort of a mechanical thing that was thought of as something used by more, you know, technicians than artists. It's almost like a cheat in a way? Yeah. Yeah. I remember my, uh, my mom, my grandma, I guess, saw me using uh, Zipatone once. And she was like, if you were a real artist, you would map those out and draw the dots on. And it's like, you know, nobody could do that. Like even like Lichtenstein can't pull it <laughs> off at 500 times the size. And, uh, and I remember, you know, just thinking like, you know, you don't get it, mom. That's but, a, that's uh, such a hyper specific criticism too. Yeah. Was she was she an artist at all, or was she just no. a believer in hard work? Yeah, she just thought I was lazy, and and to a degree, she was correct. When I was in high school, 
I first got some Zipatone and I realized how it could make a terrible high school kid's drawing look really cool. Look like you'd show it to your friends and they're yeah. like, whoa, that looks awesome. You know, cause you, they're just looking at the dots and their brain is fooled into <laughs> not noticing how terrible the actual drawing is. So you were taking this, it sounds like pretty seriously at that point in high school, if you're already exploring the world of Zipatone. I think I first saw like EC comics probably when I was about. I don't know, 13 or 14. And I was like, what are those dots that Wally Wood is using? And, and, uh, I would see a lot of early comic fanzines and things like that. And, the, and a lot of fan artists would use Zipatone because everything was printed in black and white. And so it's, it was something you just sort of find out about by word of mouth. You know, it was very hard to find out about art supplies back then. You had to really kind of guess and just experiment and try to, you know, try to just figure it out on your own. It, it struck you at that point that that was something that you could do professionally? Well, that was the dream. I didn't, I don't know how realistic I was. I certainly, I would have, when I was 13 or 14, I would have thought I might have wanted to do comics that were more interesting to me. You know, like I really liked, you know, horror comics and, mm-hmm. and I liked, you know, like the DC comics where it was not about superheroes, where it was like just about Jimmy Olsen or Lois Lane, or I liked romance comics a lot. But, um, but I never, I knew I would have to do superhero comics at mm. that time. So I used to sort of try to force myself to get into it. And I just, more and more, I, I was not interested in what, at least the superhero comics of that era the late 70s, which was like the lowest point in comics history for all comics. Did your impression of them change when superhero comics, I, I suppose, got more interesting, you know, at least when, you know, Frank Miller kind of it's came only, in? Listening. It's only gotten worse. <laughs> you, think, you think it's been downhill since then? I just, I've never been sure. interested since, uh, you know, Kurt Swan stopped drawing Superman. Yeah. You know, I can't even think what the last superhero comic I actually, like, sat down and finished was. You went to art school, though. Yeah. With an eye on comics? Yeah. Yeah, that was my my goal. I, originally, I wanted that back then there was uh, there was only one school that taught comics, and it was the Joe Kubert School that I only knew about because there were ads, I think, in like the Overstreet Comics Price It does guy. have kind of a mail-away kind of totally. vibe to it. And I remember telling my parents, like, that's I want to go to the Joe Kubert School. And my dad was really fixated on me going to like a ivy league school and was like what do you you know and he would always he'd always use gary trudeau as the it's like gary trudeau went to yale and then he became a cartoonist but he learned all this and so he was okay with you coming becoming a cartoonist if you did it on <laughs> if his i terms. did it via you know <laughs> getting a political science yeah. degree or something and i just had zero interest i really just wanted to learn how to do comics so the, as a compromise i went to pratt in uh, brooklyn which was had, there was almost nothing there that had to do with comics, but it was. I got to meet a lot of people who were into comics, and that was sort of the the education I got was by hanging out with friends who shared the same passion that I did. I got the feeling looking at some interviews you had done that when like Raw came along, for yeah. example, that it was inaccessible, but for different reasons. I well, when Raw first came out, I I was I felt like that everything had shifted. I felt like this, you know, this is like what we've all been saying that comics can, Mm. can be, uh, you know, for a whole different audience. You know, those were living in New York at the time you saw those were sold in art galleries and at 
fancy bookstores and stuff like that. And, you know, where you would never imagine, you know, a copy of Marvel two in one or whatever, you know? And so it was, uh, it, it felt like it was this whole different market had opened up, but I was also just super jealous of it. Cause I knew I was like, I wasn't old enough. I wasn't good enough at all to be in raw. And I knew like, this is what I want to do, but it's a, it feels totally off limits to me and a slightly different sensibility than I had. Did you get the sense that it was kind of a cool kids club? It felt like it. Cause I didn't know anybody, any of the people in it. You know, once I met everybody, I saw that they, we were all of a, of a similar type, but it, at, at the time they all seemed very distant to me. Were you ever able to impress your parents with with your work, was there ever a point when, when you were able to sort of point to something and to show them and that they, they could actually, you know, really be proud of, at least understand? Um, my mom has always been sort of vaguely supportive, but also <laughs> not interested. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like she's never, she was thwarted a lot by my grandparents as a kid. So she's very mindful of like never doing that to me, but, but it's also, she's not interested in comics at all. So it's uh it's a semi hollow <laughs> support but uh and my dad was my dad was not into i remember as a kid telling my grandma i wanted to be a professional cartoonist and she told that to my dad like isn't it wonderful he wants to be a professional cartoonist and i remember so distinctly my dad going like god i hope not <laughs> it really haunted me for you but he uh once i once i made a movie he was very into it he he became like my biggest fan after that to the point that he would embarrass me by like writing letters to Roger Ebert bragging about me and like literally like to all the local Chicago movie critics and he would send them my early drawings and stuff and would meet these guys like at Sundance or something and they'd be like you know your dad writes to me all the time and I was just oh my God, so mortifying. There really isn't a broader society context for success in, in comics. You could be right at the top of your... And you are, and you have been at the top of your game for you know a while now, but I assume parents in the PTA probably don't... <laughs> that doesn't really register with them. No. He... Uh... And he was, he'd be very picky about anything I would say in an interview, like, especially if it was about my family mm -hmm. or something. He's like, that's not true at all. You know, and he'd, he'd take great umbrage to it, but, but yeah, he, and he actually read my comics after that and, and sort of begrudgingly admitted he liked them. At what point for you was it clear that you were on the right path? You know, you were. You, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure well, I am at that point. Yet. At what point was it? Okay, let me rephrase that. At what point was it clear that you could make a career of doing this? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I never had huge expectations for what that would mean. I just, you know, it, it's it's a, one of those jobs that's you have to live by your wits a lot and sort of figure out. Okay, this year I'm going to do this, and I've made a living doing various different things within the world of comics you know first i did a lot of illustration stuff and then i worked for movies and did that sort of as a way to make extra money and then um selling artwork seems to be the way that i've sort of settled into as as the sort of main source of income it is interesting that the, that the comics themselves ultimately are kind of like loss leaders that it's that that again it's almost it's, like a catalog yeah. for, for original artists <laughs> that, that relates i think back to the idea of the artifact but the actual product is the artifact yeah yeah i mean you know i shouldn't i shouldn't say that necessarily because at a certain point you get enough additions in foreign countries and like you you can build up where you just have always something in print and things you, you get, you know, I get random checks from Portugal for the 
an addition of like a velvet glove that I didn't even know about, things <laughs> like that. So it's, uh, you know, the more you have, the longer you do it, the more there is sort of circulating out there. But um, but it's very hard to do it just, just by sales unless you have some huge hit one after the other. It's incredibly depressing to hear you say that as somebody who like, you are like the person for a lot of people, again, top of your game, you're a lot of people's idea of, of sort of success and, and the, the comics in and of themselves are not really enough. It's, it's the, it's, it's also the way I do. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, if I really forced myself, I could do the, I, you know, I could uh, crank them out much more quickly and I just wouldn't be happy with them. You know, I wouldn't feel 100%. Probably nobody else could tell the difference. But to me, it would be all important to take, you know, an extra two or three years sometimes to do a book. You know, sometimes I'll spend a year writing it and then throw the whole thing away and do something else. How, how many of those are there? How many How many books have you just um, tossed out? Oh, in the writing stage, many. Seven or eight. Have you started the process of drawing and give it up the only one i ever did that with extensively is the one that's reprinted in the original art book which was sort of a sequel to ice haven that was all set in los angeles and i had it all kind of figured out i was doing all this like real drawing like photo reference drawing and going to la and taking pictures and trying to get these real locations and then uh and I just realized I just really don't like L.A. at all. And I didn't I thought, like, do I want to spend four years like basically spending my day in L.A. in in parts that I sort of actively don't like? You know, it wasn't about the parts of L.A. that I that I do like. It was about all, all about the sort of Hollywood corporate parts that I don't like at all. So. I just couldn't do it. I just thought, like, I gotta get out of this world. It was you don't every, mean spending time there physically. I mean spending time there mentally. You know, in 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 my artistic world that I you know live in eight hours a day. I just after a while, I I would get up in the morning and I'd be like, oh, is there anything else I can do besides <laughs> work on this comic? And and uh, so after I did, I think seven pages, I just I. It's like, okay, I'm going to move on to something else. It's that all-encompassing that it, it will just completely throw the rest of your life out of whack? Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you've got to, you know, sort of have a reason to go in there every morning and, and want to get into the world, you know, that you've trapped yourself in. You know, it's like you got to give yourself a nice prison cell to, <laughs> to spend time in. And L.A. was not the one I wanted to be in. Maybe one day I'll get older and it'll it'll be more interesting, but it's just... It never, uh, it never clicked for me to get back into it. And once, once you're out of it, usually you, it's impossible to get back in. Have you had that experience with a book before that it was just completely emotionally taxing in that way? Something that you completed? I mean, I try to make them all sort of emotionally intense, you know, where I have to go through the process that the character's going through to some degree and to keep an openness that I, uh, I don't exactly know, you know, what, what's happening you know i'm sort of going through it blindly a little bit as the character is but this was this this felt like i was like i had this sort of agenda in mind and i was sort of setting out to to fill in the details it didn't feel like it, it felt a little too you know pre-scripted in a, in a way that i just I, I knew what i was going to have to draw you know i could see 50 pages ahead and i knew i was going to be drawing you know a detailed view of the santa monica pier or something and i just thought like oh man i don't want to do that at Santa Monica Pier is not a bad place to be. It's not a bad place to be physically, yeah. but, but just to have to to be stuck with the 
absolute reality of that. Like a lot of my work is sort of in a disguised version of, of a city I know well. You know, it's often Oakland or, mm-hmm. or Chicago or New York, but, but I'm not being so specific about it that I have to get all the details right. And I find, um, I find that is a lot more freeing than you can kind of go with whatever the whim of that particular day is and change things slightly. And it's, it's almost like a dream version of, of the world, which is what I'm much more interested in than the photographed version of the world. It's a combination, I guess, of the fact that Los Angeles is such an industry town that everything is so tied to the movie making process, but also you kind of painted yourself into a corner by doing all of that due diligence. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was sort of an experiment. I thought, you know, I've never really done that where I had like reference for every single background and it was not at all made up. It's all, you know, based on either sketching or, or photographs of things that I'm, you know, adapting. And, uh, I thought maybe that would be a really interesting way to work for once. And it just, what didn't fit me at all. Was the the first and last time that you're going to do that probably. I could only, I know I could do it, but it would have to be a place I really want to be, which probably would be something, something more visually interesting than LA. I found LA really visually, Mm. uh, repulsive. <laughs> you know, well, just, I'm not going to argue with you. It just doesn't have a, you know, there's parts of it that are really beautiful. I yeah. like downtown LA, or at least the way it used to be before it, yeah. it uh, became, became all cool. high yeah. yeah. How far do you ultimately deviate from the script? I mean, it sounds like you're, you're pre-writing quite a bit of it, but then you're just letting the story kind of go its own way. Yeah. Usually I usually have to have like a skeleton for at least each part of the story and a solid idea for the whole thing. But I try to keep it open and adapt along the way and not feel constricted and feel like I can add five pages in the middle of a story if I have to, or very often I'm cutting stuff. I try to be ruthless about cutting everything, you know, and there's some Alex Toth has some line about, you know, it's better to just cut everything beforehand. You don't waste any time. You know, it's all, it's all <laughs> just about, never write the book in the yeah, first place. And yeah, you do a lot of thinking and a lot of. I try to like you know live mentally in the world for a very long time before I start. So I have all these details that I know. I write down endless long variations of the stories and where they go off on tangents that I'm not going to ever draw, but I know that's part of the story and then you're you're informed by that then it then when you're done it feels like you're you're drawing the real world where there are other implied stories around the edges that that aren't there you know too many stories feel like they wrote exactly what they have in the book and there's nothing beyond that the characters have no life beyond that you can't imagine them living their normal lives you're writing your own fan fiction it sounds like basically (laughs) the abandoned book having been a a sort of sequel to ice haven um but but beyond that and i guess obviously beyond some of the eight ball stuff with reoccurring characters that there hasn't been enough in one of the stories to want to kind of come back to it at some point i mean that's sort of the idea i i uh i admire like the Hernandez brothers yeah. or people like that who can just stick with the same characters and turn any idea they have into a Hopi story. You know, that's that's a way to do it for sure. But I'm always like, I get dissatisfied with like the style I'm using, the characters yeah. I'm using, and I just want to start over. And to me, that new start is always the best time. And I feel like if I just had to go back 
to the same characters over and over, I would never get that feeling. And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure for other artists, that's they get that feeling just starting a new story with the same characters, and there's there's a certain ease and familiarity they have. I have to imagine that Eight Ball would have scratched that itch really well, both in terms of it being short stories and aesthetically varying quite a bit from from story to story. Yeah, that was the idea. I mean, I just uh, I could so easily imagine myself getting bored being stuck just drawing the same character over and over. I mean, I, when I, my first comic Lloyd Llewellyn was not necessarily what I wanted to do. It was sort of back when I started that, it was sort of agreed that that's, that's the way to do a successful black and white comic is you have to have like a main character and do stories with that character. And I tried to do all kinds of different stories with the character, but I got really bored having to shoehorn him into everything. (laughs) And it was such a great freeing relief to do eight ball where I could just do two pages of anything I wanted. And in fact, had to do two pages cause I'd have, I'd have 29 pages sort of committed to an, an issue. And then I'd realize I had three more pages to fill with like a week to, to go. And I would just, okay, I got to make something up. And it, that was, that was really fun. Very challenging. I always got the feeling reading Velvet Love that that was probably for you the ultimate experience of just seeing where the story would take itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you set out with anything in mind when you sat down to write that? I wasn't even sure there was going to be a second chapter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd, I did the first chapter just to throw myself into something, you know, literally paint myself into a corner. So part of the creation process for you is setting out not only parameters, but like obstacles? Kind of, yeah. And and, and the way, you know, that I always thought of myself as like walking on a tightrope with that whole story. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're at the end and you're like, what, you know, what do I do now? What do I do for the last five feet? And by the end of that story, I had lived in that world so intensely. And so it was so sort of deeply felt that, um, that it all made sense to me. But I knew as I was doing the last couple chapters, like that it was going to take people, you know, many decades of trying to figure it out to uh to make any sense of it can you make sense of it i'm not sure i could anymore if i reread it it made it made sense to you at the time it absolutely did yeah has anyone gone back to you with an idea and explained it to you in a way that i mean has anyone figured it out i guess is the way of putting it uh, yeah sure i mean there is no figuring it out it's not doesn't have a it doesn't have like an algebraic you know solution or anything but but there are people who have who have read it in much the same way I was, I was seeing it. When you inhabit something so fully to a point where it's really impacting your mood and and your life beyond that, have you worked yourself into a depression doing your work? (laughs) No, my work is the opposite of depression. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm depressed about everything else. (laughs) If if I feel depressed about my work, I would, I'd do something else. See, it's okay. And she's like, oh, those guys. (laughs) You had a book derailed by Trump. Oh, no, not necessarily. It, it was more that the book I'm actually working on now. You're, I, so you're back at it. Yeah, I never stopped. I mean, it was the it was just the book when I first was thinking of it. It was probably to early 2016 when I was thinking of it. And I remember, remember those days, yeah. remember those carefree days. Yeah. And it just felt like, and I didn't think of this consciously, but just in the back of my mind, it was like, well, this is going to, you know, we're going to have four years of Hillary Clinton. You know, it just felt like that's, that's what the next four years is going to be. And I didn't consciously like set out to write a book about that at all. But the minute Trump was elected, I knew like this story is going to be very deeply affected 
by what just happened. You know, it's, I knew that living through that daily reality, which is so much more insane than I ever imagined. I think all of us. Did you see this Sharpie thing the other day? Oh yeah. I I, I was having a conversation with a a friend about it last night and, and he said something like, no, no, this is the most ridiculous thing. And I was like, no, it's, you don't understand. There's a most ridiculous thing every week. And we just, although I, there's something about this that I find very interesting, which is, that it's a visual lie, which is really rare. You know, it's it's one thing to tell a verbal when, lie. When there's physical evidence of the crime. Yeah, or just to see it. Like, you know, you hear words from a, from a con man like Trump, and it you could convince yourself, if you're his supporter, that, oh, he doesn't mean that. He's, he's using this for different reasons to get at the liberals who hate or you know whatever whatever it is that's that's sort of outside the actual words he says but this is such a to see it as a visual you know as a cartoon basically <laughs> it's very hard to rebut it somehow you know it feels much more damning in a way i think what was so bold about it figuratively and literally yeah. was the fact that it, it wasn't he didn't attempt to make it look like the- <laughs> that's what's so great about it <laughs> I suspect you probably don't really want to talk about the upcoming work that much. Yeah, I'm not quite ready to. Yeah. But can you kind of pinpoint for me what it was about that work, the work that didn't at least at first make sense under a Trump presidency? Oh, it's, it's a, I mean, more like, well, like say, okay, take, for example, the, I did that comic, the death ray mm-hmm. that started out as, you know, sort of what it was, a sort of a teenage version of one of my friends getting superpowers and that all I was working on that during the, the Iraq war, you know, after it was yep. after nine eleven, and when, you know, Cheney and everybody was getting us involved in that. And so it's very informed by that, but not in a way that I was aware of when I was doing it, you know, it was just, that's what I was listening to on the radio every day and talking about with my wife and all. Can, can and you, now that you're removed from it, can you kind of pinpoint those? You can connections? just, you, it, it's a subtle thing. It's not, a, yeah. it's, I never do anything that's like overtly political. It's all just what informs yeah. the tone of the piece. And I could just tell that this book would, would be informed by that just because everything's informed by what's, sort of the main things running through my head at the time of working on it. I mean, that's sort of the process. So it wasn't specific to the story? Not at all. You could have been working on any book. Could have been working on any book. I knew that this book had sort of an opening for, for that type of stuff more than, more than others might have. I mean, it sounds like you have to, you had to back away for a little bit and, and regroup. No, I mean, it was, I think, there was whatever the article was where I sure. said all this was just, uh, as with most articles, somebody wrote a cute headline mm. that made it seem like, like I was totally abandoning something because of Trump and it. I was probably joking as I usually am and jokes don't work anymore. <laughs> Everybody, we need a new form of, we need a new form of, of like, I've, I've always had this sort of sarcasm that's right, yeah. right on the edge of actually being serious yeah. but is not necessarily and that that tone is gone that tone does not exist anymore you do have to I mean, you have to rethink it right or do, do you have to wait for things to sort of play out do you have to see what the world is going to look like over the next couple of years because no, as i say i'm not writing i'm not like conceiving of something in its entirety in advance you know i had i had very sort of loose ideas for the beats of this book i mean this book is made up of 
of a bunch of standalone-ish short stories that all then tie together. But I, I, it didn't. I wasn't at the point of writing where I had to all of a sudden go like, "Oh my gosh, this is going to go in a totally different direction than I had imagined." I just knew that that the way I, I sort of, in some very intangible way, conceived it would go was was going to be derailed along the way because I was going to be going through some external experience that's much more uh, unpredictable than I imagined. Did it, did it slow the process down at all? Um, well, Trump slows the process down <laughs> for sure. It's, it's, just, so you have to like pencil in three hours of crying every morning. So it's, it's more just the, the sort of, like I really had to re rethink how I felt about humans, human nature and, and just the, I guess I had a higher, I had a, <laughs> a higher um, opinion of sort of human skepticism or something. Which is funny to hear, like you said, you're a sarcastic person that certainly comes off in, in a lot of the work. But, but you almost can't do that anymore. I mean, it sort of felt like that was safe during a time where I thought that the bulk of the world was, was rational. And to see, just to see the sort of willful just uh, avoidance of obvious reality. And, and to me, just more the to not sort of see what a classic American con man to like to grow up and to not be able to process like, oh, this guy is 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 not reputable. This guy has all the qualities of of a con man from a from like a, you know, Herman Melville story. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's it's like a time honored trope, every single aspect of it is so obvious that it's that it's just deeply troubling that that's that people would sort of want to believe in that. Do you think that up to that point up till that like very rude reckoning that you had become less cynical as you had gotten older? I I think I just I think my all my cynicism was warranted. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah. I mean like uh, you know it's, it's, so it yeah. all sort of comes flooding back but you know that that tends to happen to be especially sure. like you know you get married, you have a kid, you get older like a lot for a lot of people the cynicism is right. left behind. I guess it seemed previously, it seemed sort of like the lies and the, the sort of the trickery that you would see from, uh, you know, George Bush senior or somebody like that, that felt much more sort of subtle and, and not as, uh, not so overt. And then to see it in such a crude overt form still work was, was jarring. When you go back and, you know, do something like this book or um, any other instances where there's been a, a retrospective and you, you, you're able to kind of connect with that moment in time, does it feel like the work of a different person? Yeah. Yeah, it always does. I don't even, when I look at my work from 20 or 30 years ago, it's just, it seems like a totally different person. I mean, are you embarrassed by any of it looking back? No, no, not at all. No. Not at all. I like it all. It's it's actually the more distant it is, the more I like it because it's I'm sort of more forgiving of this person that I mm. that I barely connect to anymore. It's that sort of five or ten year rule of if if you're looking back at something immediately, the first thing you see is all the mistakes. But once it's far enough in the the past, you're able to appreciate it through a different yeah. lens. I mean, it's it's sort of like once it's if it's recent. I still could maybe correct it, you know, it's like even <laughs> the George Lucas. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a real danger. You know, if I, if I look at something as recent as uh patience, for example, I could look at that and I could say, Oh, I should redraw this face and I could really add a page here and do this and that do, you know, whatever. 
And that still seems like, well, I'm, that's still a possibility. But if I look at like Velvet Glove or something like that, it's it's just indelible at this point. That's what it is. There's no changing it. I think that's part of the danger you run into with sequels too. A sequel in, in, in a sense is a way of kind of a, going back and correcting things or going back and, and changing things. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had much interest in sequels, both as a, as a viewer or as, as a writer. I really like standalone things, things that, that, you know, get in and out and that's it. Do you have trouble finishing or once you're done with the work, are you, are you done? It's out the door. Usually by the time I'm done, I'm ready to be done. So those feelings of like wanting to go back and correct every piece of somebody's face, that's something that like comes after the the process of having expunged this. It's funny. There's a real, there's a, a certain process that I go through. That's probably similar for a lot of artists where like right after I'm done and I look at what I've done, it seems terrible. Yeah. Like it always seems like I just see the crudeness. Like to me, it just seems like the work of a, of a, like a toddler or something. It just seems so crude and just not, not what I intended at all. Like just way below what I have envisioned. And then I'll put it away, you know, I'll send it off to the printer. I never look at it really when it comes out and I'll not think about it. And like a year later, I'll look at the originals again and they'll look really slick and like, wow, these are like professional looking. It's a totally different feeling and it's really interesting. I think about this a lot. I think about something a friend told me a lot. Uh, she was talking about having a baby and yeah. the baby was really ugly when it was born. <laughs> they all Which, are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and maybe it took like a little bit longer for the baby to get cute. Yeah. She's very concerned about the fact <laughs> that it would never become cute. And like, I think that's a really good metaphor for like working on a piece of art for yeah, really sure. long. Totally. Yeah, our, our son was horrific when he was born. <laughs> Has your approach to putting ink on paper changed to such a degree that it, it's... I mean, obviously, it, it's clear to me as somebody who looks at your work once it's you know produced the, the way it's meant to be produced commercially that this is the work of the same artist. But the, the sort of the ingredients look a lot different when you go back and re-examine them. Well, I know early on I was... I was much more self-conscious and nervous about the way the art looked. I've never been really self-conscious about the writing or the stories that much, but but I really, really wanted the art to have this certain level of professionalism that I was very concerned with as a young artist. And so I can see that a lot of, like I would use French curves to make the lines and you could just see the, the stiffness in my drawing. Like I could almost feel like just the strain of my hand. I can just, when I look at some of those, especially like velvet glove pages, I just feel, I just picture my hand with like veins popping out of the back, you know, it just feels like so tense. And now everything is much, much less tense. Like I know. I feel like I know what I'm doing. This is something I think a lot about as it sort of pertains to my own life. And I think this is part of growing up and getting older is recognizing that the things that you continue to do for completely arbitrary reasons. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of that. Drawing comics really is all about that. There's a lot of things where I think, you know, you it's very a very specific little world, but you think like, 
Oh, I only learned to draw ears at this point, and it's only been three or four years that I knew how to draw an ear correctly. Yeah. This is a total example. And, uh, and the, then the Rob Liefeld syndrome is, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you just, th- you think of the, like, oh, now I can draw ears. And then you'll look back and you'll realize, like, oh, it's been 25 years that I've been doing this version of ears. Yeah. But it's just, it, it feels like you just figured it out, you know, and it's, and, uh, you know, things I think I've never done before, I'll look back in old comics and, oh, wow, I, you know, I did this exact panel. And not specific to comics, but is especially prevalent in comics, is the key to unlocking it is like finding the right shortcut, right? Finding the right the right two or three lines that, that equate to that real-world <laughs> object. I find I'm using more and more lines. I find that, that as the world gets more cartoonish, I'm making my comics more specific. Like they're, I'm drawing more, uh, I'm trying to make the characters all look very real and specific and not at all that, you know, that kind of Scott McCloud thing where you're, you give almost no detail so that the reader can project themselves onto the character. I always feel like I have my own stable of actors and they all, you know, it's like, here's the woman who played Patience and when she was younger, she was Rebecca in Ghost World and now she's the main character of my new book. Years ago in college, I had a friend who went to uh, maybe Ape or uh-huh. some some uh, comic show in, in Southern California yeah. Yeah, and met you and I was like, oh, what, is, what does he look like? You know, because yeah, at, at the time at least, like, you know, it was like your right, own you drawings. You had to go by the drawing. Yeah, and, but well, he said, well, he looks like a Dan Klaus drawing. <laughs> Which I thought was like the great, the best, the best possible response. He looks like a. I think a lot of people look like they're drawing. You know, you can sort of tell. I remember once walking down the street in Berkeley, and I saw this guy coming at me, and I was like, "This guy has just got to be a cartoonist." I just had this feeling, and then he, uh, as he came up, he introduced himself as Jason, the the cartoon, and it huh. was like he had just been in town for some signing, but he just had such a vibe of like that's a that guy looks like a cartoonist, and it was just something I can't put it into words, but yeah, I mean other than was. Seth, who you know yeah. dresses like right a cartoon Seth, character, Seth is easy to spot. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know how much of this is like cosmic coincidences. You know, th- this idea of the world getting more cartoony and your work getting more realistic. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. that's something that, like, uh, it seems has kind of occurred to you with some distance. It's not something you're consciously doing, is it? it in a way, I mean, I, I think I'm drawn to doing it that way more and more. You know, once I became aware of it, I, it, you know, when you become aware of the things you're doing, you can either go, oops, and move away from that, or you can go, you know what, that's the right way to go. And I feel... I don't know, I was, again, back to Trump for the millionth time, but I feel like nobody has done a good cartoon of Trump. Like, mm. it's, it's just impossible, because yeah. what, what can you do? Nobody could do a funnier cartoon than Trump drawing on a map with a Sharpie. Like, there's literally nothing. That's the problem everybody talks about in comedy, is, is right. it's just, it's almost too easy. Yeah. But also, aesthetically, too. Right. You can't really draw a grotesque caricature of the guy. And it just, it... It is insufficient to the task. And it, whenever I see somebody doing a political cartoon where they try to draw him, it just seems it's got like a level of obscenity to it almost where it, it just so falls so short of what is needed. And actually, the only uh, the only drawing I've ever seen of Trump that really hit me that was right was uh, in Drew Friedman's mm. new book of presidents. He uh, he drew every single U.S. president in order, and you're sort of going through the book, and he gets everybody just beautifully, 
but his when you get to that punchline that is the last <laughs> page and you see Trump, it's just it's just, you know, he's he got it. And it's it's the only drawing you see where it, like that captures everything about him. I think the one cartoonist who has done it right, I can't think of his name, but he he's the conservative cartoonist who draws Trump as like super handsome. Yeah, that, I think that guy's much more interesting than yeah. any guy coming from the left. I think because he's he's like the cartoonist of our age in a exactly. weird way. Or the guy who does those paintings. The paintings, yeah, Jake McNaughton, are, I think Nick is his McNaughton, name. yeah. The, those have such a such a transgressive power to them because they're they're just so they fill you with such a horrible feeling but it's such a it's not what you normally get from political art earlier in the conversation you described movies as almost it sounded like kind of a, a side hustle at the time or at least when you first <laughs> got into that's it. how i thought of it and you did refer to it in the past tense i mean you know wilson isn't that long ago obviously that was right. different than the Zweigoff stuff does it feel past tense to you does it feel like something that you're just not involved in i mean there are there are like options on several books and there's projects you know discussed all the time but i just don't want to work on it i was, I was at a certain point i felt like like for a while i really enjoyed writing the screenplays and it was it was very freeing because compared to doing comics it's very uh it's a very different thing like you write First of all, you write screenplays, and the only people who read it are hyper-interested readers who are going to read every mm -hmm. word and, and analyze every page. And you don't have any anybody else you're appealing to except for this tiny little group of people. And I found that very that was very satisfying to have people read stuff so carefully. That would terrify me. The, the idea of somebody reading it at that detail yeah, that sounds yeah. miserable. But you yeah, enjoyed that. No, I liked it because nobody reads comics like that. You never yeah. get any feedback like that in comics. You want it to feel like somebody is, is taking it the just, time that it took to yeah, do it. Yeah, it was just a fun... And it, and you're not thinking about a mass audience. You're thinking about, you know, one or two people usually, usually just a director. And it was just so fascinating. And then, and then they would say, like, get rid of this character and change this person's mm. name and do that, you know, and you... And it's so... <clears throat> it's so easy to do that. You know, you can just press cut and paste and all of a sudden everything you know moves around and it's just so fluid to write a script like that whereas in a comic if you get halfway through and you go like oh man this character should have been an old lady too bad you know unless you want to redraw it every time it appeared in the story. yeah i guess it's liberating from the standpoint of not being maybe emotionally invested in quite the same way right, right. and it that was the thing it wasn't like this wasn't going into my lasting legacy or whatever, you know, my comics, I feel like this is what I've done. These are my, these are my babies that I'm a hundred percent responsible for. You don't feel, but you don't feel that it like a, like a ghost world or any of those are a part of your legacy in the same way. No, those, I think there's them, so many cooks. Yeah. Yeah. None of them are mine really. You know, they're, I don't even recognize a lot of it as, from the same world as my comics, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like the same as, uh, when they make toys of my mm. work, you know, it's like, it's sort of related, but I don't, I didn't make the toy, you know, it's a very different feeling. And I liked, I liked having that lack of responsibility kind of, you know, that, that I didn't have to get, you know, stay up at night worrying. Did I get every little detail right? Cause it's, it's ultimately not on me to figure that out. It must be satisfying in a different way, though, to see this whole, all of these people working on something. Oh, it's very strange, especially on Ghost World, the first one, to see, like, I would write a line in the script 
that was just mainly like a joke to make Terry laugh when he read it. And then you'd see people responding to that line. They say, you know, in, in the script, it says it's nighttime and it's raining and it's all this stuff. And I'm, and it's like, it doesn't matter. You know, I just made that up. It doesn't, you could do whatever you want. You know, realizing and, though that you write rain and then that's like yeah, another like $20,000. $20,000. And it's like uh, the crew is like, Oh no, we have to get wigs for all the actors. And, and uh, you, you know, you a lot of people. Yeah, lives and, you just, and you realize how <laughs> biblical. The yeah. script is, you know, and it's, uh, it took me a while to figure that out to go like, ooh, you know, I, I, should, I always wanted to put an asterisk, like, doesn't matter, you know, this is just in there to make it sound that a lot of it is that I want the descriptions to sound good because I was used to writing captions in comics, but the descriptions don't have to read well or sound good. It's all just information. I always love those in Mad Magazine, the uh, editor's notes that were clearly just jokes in there. Right. You know, <laughs> just like, it's just doing that as sort of like a way right. of kind of apologizing. Yeah. Overall though, did you enjoy the experience even though it's kind of not really a part of your life anymore? Um, I enjoyed some of it and you know, are you some glad of you did it? Oh yeah, for sure. It was fun and it was, it definitely opened me up to appreciate comics more, appreciate the, the sort of the, the thing I can do with comics that no no filmmaker can do. The control. Yeah. You know, you see even people who are real auteur filmmakers who really do everything themselves. Makes They have to make so many compromises, you know, just based on, like, the fact that it might not be sunny the day you're shooting. You know, there's all kinds of things that you have to react to along the way that um, doing comics you do not. All you have to react to is what's going on in your head at a given time. That's right. You're fighting yourself, but you're not fighting, uh, you know, a prop person who doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> that's uh, that's a very different thing. The comics process is still an enjoyable one for you? More than ever, yeah. Now, I've gotten to that stage, which I think you need to get to as an older artist, is to to just be in it for the love of it. Because there's nothing else, really, that that will carry you through. So it's really, I could very happily like not publish any of my comics. I could very happily just do them, show them to a few people and, and move on with it. Like it doesn't, it's not about what happens after it's done. It's really about doing it. And it's, uh, it's endlessly compelling. There you go. An absolute all-time legend. Thanks so much to Dan Klaus for taking the time to do that. If you're a fan of his work, which I am sure if you listen to this podcast, you are, you should pre-order his new book, Original Art. That's out next month on Fanographics. Thanks so much to him. Thanks to Jack for setting up that conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks to you, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr, that's rolcast.tumblr.com. And that's about all I got for this week, so stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.